0: If I were to ask you to name a famous mountain, what would you come up with? Mount Everest, of course. Um, Some others that pop into my mind are Mount Olympus, Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Fuji, Mount Vesuvius. Yeah, you're likely going to have more you could add to that list. And uh, this week on the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to continue talking about mountains, and discovering together the surprisingly significant role that mountains play in the story of the Bible. As you read through the scriptures, it's tough not to notice that some of the most important and dramatic moments take place on mountains. And it seems like God often chooses to do some of his most profound work in the neighborhood of a mountain. And so over the course of two of our Discover the Word podcasts, we're taking note of ten mountains in the story of the Bible, 10 examples of the gospel in the mountains. And so begin part two of this study next as we go to Mount Carmel and discover an invitation God extended there that maybe you need to hear and respond to today. Well, hi, I'm Brian Hettinga and this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Marty Hahn Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And uh, Bill is the one leading the group in this series called The Gospel in the Mountains. And if you missed part one of this study, in which we looked at five mountains and their significance, remember you have access to that part of this podcast on discovertheword.org website and on your favorite podcasting app, uh, Ararat, Moriah, Sinai, Nebo, and Zion. Those are the five we covered in part one. And now we have five more that we'll do in part two, beginning with Mount Carmel, famous for the encounter the prophet Elijah had with the prophets of Baal. Uh, They'll review the specifics of that story and then they'll point us toward that invitation that God made there that echoes down the mountainside to us today. All right, so Bill, let's get started on part two of the Gospel in the Mountains. Have
1: you ever heard the expression, you can't go home again? Oh, yeah. What's that all about? What do you think of that? Do you think it's true or false or maybe?
2: I have never heard that expression before. Really? Really. Hmm. I don't think so.
3: I've heard it. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what it means. As I think about it as you're talking, I think it means you can't go back and redo what's already been done. That's one thing that I think of. And the other one is that you can't go back into the past the same where you were in the past because we're different we change and we can't go back and be something we've grown away from
4: that's the way I take Mm it like we change and places change and with time we keep moving forward all of us and everything Mm
1: -hmm. yeah I think also not only do we change but like you said Mark places change and in a sense the home you go back to was not the same place as the home that you left because mm-hmm. you've changed and it's changed as okay. well. So, Daniel, now that you're hearing all this, what do you
2: think? <laughs> It does make sense because, you know, my mm-hmm. wife and I don't live where I grew up. And when I go back to where I grew up, in some ways it feels similar, but it's a very different place than it was when I was growing up there. Yeah, And so mm-hmm. to go back there feels differently than it did when I was growing up.
1: Yeah, I think, too, uh, to get back to where Lisa first started us, there are times in which we can't go home again because of something we have done Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that perhaps makes us hesitant because we don't want the confrontation or the shame or the whatever it might be that's going on there. And I think about how hard it must have been for the prodigal son to make that decision Mm -hmm. in Luke 15 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to go back home knowing that he had disgraced his family and wasted all. I mean, how hard would that have been to make that decision to go home?
3: Yeah. You know, I don't really notice that at first in the story because I'm so familiar with how welcoming the father was. Mm -hmm. But you're right. The prodigal Mm -hmm. son didn't know what the reception would be. Do you
1: think he would have felt differently about going home if he had known in advance that he would have been welcomed? (laughs) I would think (laughs) so. I think that's an important point because... When we do go home and we're knowing we're going to have to face problems relationally or with our past or whatever, if we just knew Mm -hmm. that it was going to be okay, Mm -hmm. it would be so much easier. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough for me, we've been looking at some events in the Bible that happen strategically on mountains. And we're going to come to another one today, a very familiar story in Mount Carmel. But what I would suggest to you is that on Mount Carmel, the children of Israel are invited to come home again. Hmm. They're invited to return home again to their God. So we're familiar with the story of Mount Carmel, but perhaps for those who are less familiar, what has
2: led up to the moment of confrontation that we'll talk about in a moment? It's a time when one of the kings that the Old Testament describes as one of the most evil kings to lead Israel is in power. His name's Ahab, and he has a wife, Jezebel that's considered even worse than he is, and as a result of their leadership, they've led Israel into the worship of the god Baal that we sometimes in the West pronounce as Baal, and as a result, the people of Israel are following this god that is not the god of Israel. So in a sense, they've left home spiritually as a people.
1: So how does God respond to it when they leave home? What does he do to kind of pinch them in
4: a little bit?
3: So, yeah, they're super challenged because of this long drought.
4: Okay, so if somebody says, well, what does that have to do with coming home in a drought? I mean- well,
1: we're going to get to that because the purpose of the drought was a situation that produced great pressure upon the people because they're an agricultural economy. And as a result of three and a half years of that drought, the people are called to Mount Carmel. And we see that in First Kings 18, verse 20. Would you read that for us, Mark?
4: Okay, so Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel.
1: Now, the prophets he's speaking there are the prophets of Baal, as Daniel pronounced it, Baal, as I'm used to hearing it. Those are the prophets of Baal. They have been called to Mount Carmel, which is a high place in the northern part of Israel. And it abuts up against the Mediterranean Sea and then runs inland all the way to the Valley of Megiddo. It's a mountain ridge line and uh, they assemble there and you have the people of Israel, you have the king, you have the prophets of Baal, and you have Elijah. And at that point with all the cast kind of in place, it's Elijah that puts down the challenge in verse 21. Elisa, would you read verse 21?
3: Sure. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word.
1: Now, I would suggest that that phrase, if the Lord is God, follow him, is an invitation to come home. (laughs) He's inviting them to come back to their God. And as he does it, he's calling them away from the worship of Baal and back to following the one God of Israel. And Elijah issues that as the prophet of the true God as he's getting ready to confront the prophets of the false god,
4: Baal. Hey, Bill, I got a question. Sure. I don't want to get too far off the page, but how does Elijah show up?
1: Yeah. This was a conversation that had been happening, and Elijah first comes on the scene to tell Ahab, that there's going to be a drought because of the idolatry. Then he shows up, and in a conversation, it's agreed that there has to be a meeting to resolve all this problem. And so Elijah's there to represent God. So technically, he's kind of included in the prophets, although there's like 450 Baal prophets mm-hmm. and only one of him. So it's primarily the Baal prophets that are in view, but he's there in view as okay. well.
3: And Bill, isn't there something here with Baal? I don't know for sure, but. He's like a God of nature, right? So the drought is connected to his power or lack thereof, right? Mm -hmm. That's why God's using it?
1: Yeah, he was a God connected to the weather, actually. And so in a sense, God has been working in Baal's backyard. He's been working in the area where Baal's supposed to be the strongest and winning. Ah. And so now you come to this moment of confrontation, Elijah says, if Baal be God, follow him, if the Lord is God, follow him, then they have this contest where they set up altars, they put sacrifices, and the prophets of Baal call for fire to come down and consume, and it doesn't work. Then Elijah sets up his altar and his sacrifice, and he cries out to God to send fire, and God does. And here's the point that the people have come to. In verse 39, Daniel, would you give that to us?
2: Sure, it says, when all the people saw it, saw the fire come down and consume Elijah's offering, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. So they're no longer bouncing between two
1: opinions, are they? Mm-hmm. They have, in a sense, come home spiritually.
4: Mm-hmm. It sounds like a long way they had to come to come home to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to wonder how they felt that they would be received if, if God would forgive them, if God would take them back, if God would once again be the God of the people of Israel. You don't know what their thinking was, but again, it's a long way back from idolatry. You saw that at Mount Sinai with a golden calf. You see it throughout the Old Testament. This people was constantly drifting away, and what I would like to suggest to you is the invitation to come home. Is maybe one of the most beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of God's patience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and how long suffering He is toward us. Because as the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, have you ever yeah. felt that sense of lostness, of wandering, of distance?
4: Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah how often, huh? And mm-hmm.
3: mm. maybe another word, and it's an old word, but maybe it fits here, but the invitation to return is an invitation mm. to repentance, to say, mm. I am so sorry. I turned in the wrong direction, and I'm going to mm. do a 180 and turn around and come back to you, God. Yeah.
4: So, Bill, what are you seeing that's so beautiful?
3: What I'm seeing is so
1: beautiful is that this is not the first time that God has called them back home, and it won't mm. be the last time mm. that he will call them back home. But because of his great love and his great patience and his great long suffering, he keeps calling them back, and when they come, he welcomes them, yeah. and he makes them his people again, knowing that they're going to fail him again, and he brings them back again. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me, mm-hmm. because I know how often I fail and how thankful I am for his patience. and. If you can relate to that, then you understand the beauty of the invitation that you really can
0: go home again. And that is mountain number six in our series called The Gospel in the Mountains, Mount Carmel. And now mountain number seven, the mountain where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever been in
1: a particular setting, and this is kind of an odd question, but a particular setting when you heard something that dramatically altered your thinking about a subject? I mean, other than on Discover the Word.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, there have been times, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm thinking of those moments where I heard information that I didn't know before and it changed my mind on something. Yeah, it's funny.
4: That's happened a lot to me, but I can't remember what they were right now.
2: Yeah, right.
3: And I have to go to discover the word bills. (laughs) (laughs) I was joking, Elisa. (laughs) I'm actually thinking about how many conversations, and we've been at this together for a while now, but how many conversations, especially at the beginning of my participation, where I began to see this pop that the whole Bible is one story, and Mm. it's one Mm. story Mm -hmm. about our desperate need and God's heroic rescue of us. And I just hadn't really simplified it to that. Mm -hmm. And to come to understand this every story whispers Jesus name thing, as our friend Sally Lloyd-Jones has taught us, it has really been pivotal to
1: me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, I think back to when I was in seminary, and I took a class on exposition of Psalms. And in the first day of class, the Professor made a statement about the book of Psalms being an inspired collection of human emotional reactions to life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that suddenly altered how I viewed the book of Psalms and explained a lot of things that I struggled with in the book of Psalms and helped me to kind of get my arms around some of that stuff. And for me, that was a, a transformational moment because that was, you know, over 30 years ago. And I have never been able to read the Psalms the same way since.
2: That happened to me in a class as well. It was the history of Christianity in North America and Canada. And I remember in that class, it was the first time that I realized that the expression of Christianity that I was most familiar with was a very U.S.-centric expression of Christianity. And it was the first time that it occurred to me, people outside of this country may have different experiences with how Christianity is expressed. Mm. And it started the question that has gnawed at me since is (laughs) how much of my faith is shaped by my Americanness and how much of my faith is shaped by a true picture of what the scriptures say. Mm. And so that was a moment for me in that class.
1: I'm glad you used the word moment, Daniel, because I think if we were to take these kind of things, and even the ones that maybe we can't go back and pull back in our memory, these are what I think you could genuinely refer to as teachable moments, Hmm. Hmm. where something specific was happening. But in order for a teachable moment to work, you have to have a teachable spirit. Hmm. Hmm. You have to be willing to receive and be challenged and hear and allow what you're hearing to, in a sense, reshape your thinking in proper and appropriate ways. And I think that's one of the things that stands out when you look at the Gospels and you see so much of Jesus's ministry was absorbed in teaching that was challenging people who were listening to him, to reshape their thinking around a new set of values and a new paradigm and in ways that for them would have been just as unexpected as it was for me in that Psalms class or for you, Daniel, in the, the moment you described. I mean, for each of us, mm-hmm. we have these things that can impact us greatly, but we've got to be willing to receive it mm-hmm. and hear it and respond to it. So Jesus, the teacher, is what we want to think about today. And once again, perhaps the most famous of Jesus's teachings took place on a mountain, (laughs) Uh, as we've been seeing. All these things keep happening on mountains. Twenty times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is either described as actively teaching or he's referred to as a teacher, or we see people responding to his teaching. That's 20 times in the Gospel of Matthew. That's a lot. It is. And the most notable of those perhaps, is in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, which uh, brings us to the setting for what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. 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 <laughs> Mark, would you like to read Matthew 5, 1 and 2 for us?
4: Okay. Well, one day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them.
1: He began to teach them. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, it says he began to preach the kingdom of God. Uh, he began to preach this kingdom message. So that's the beginning of his preaching ministry. But now on the mount, the sermon on the mount, we see him beginning
4: his teaching. What's the difference if somebody says, I, I don't get it, yeah, the difference between preaching well, and teaching?
1: I think the, a lot of the difference is intent. And I'm gonna give you my personal definition of the difference, and you feel free to push back on it because it's only my personal definition. But I think in some ways, preaching is intended to change our hearts, and teaching is intended to change our minds.
2: Hmm.
1: Teaching appeals to how we think about things by giving us better, hopefully, information to think about it with, whereas preaching is to challenge us in the way we approach and view life. And so for me, it's a difference in purpose that makes the difference between the two. Does that make sense?
4: You know, I kind of struggle with that. I tend to think of preaching as more as proclaiming. <laughs> I think it all depends on what you think mm-hmm. of preaching. Mm-hmm. You know, And with Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, I think of that as being like John kind of proclaiming it, that it's come. Mm-hmm. Whereas when he moves into chapter 5, he seems to be describing it.
2: Yeah. And I would say that there's probably a lot of people in our audience, and I might be one of them, <laughs> that would say that we've maybe divided those too much and that really good teaching is a part of preaching and hmm. that they're more similar than maybe we, we make them out to be. But I have a feeling this is probably a little bit more beside the point of what you're trying to get us to than really what the message is that Jesus is bringing on this yeah. mountain. And
4: I want to know why the mountain is important. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, the first answer is the text doesn't tell us why the mountain's important. So we lay that out there first. But it may have been nothing more than just logistics. Mm-hmm. They didn't have PA systems, they didn't have broadcasting equipment. And so sometimes teaching from a mountaintop would allow the voice to project and carry and allow people to hear better than they could uh, in a different kind of setting. So it may be nothing more significant than that, but even in itself, that's significant Mm -hmm. because it's an expression of the extremes Jesus went to to communicate this message Mm. that was very important.
4: I remember in other conversations, too, we point out that in that time, high places had a different significance. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And it could be that this is Jesus establishing a new way of doing life in the very kind of high place that in the past they would have used to worship false gods. I go back to something you said a few minutes ago, Mark, when you're talking about preaching versus teaching. You said in one, he's declaring the kingdom, and in the other, he's explaining it. Well, that's exactly what he's doing here. Hmm. He is explaining it. Hmm. And we can read through just the Beatitudes, if you want to read around the table, and, and just read the Beatitudes between the three of you. Okay. What I want you to listen for is a different way of viewing life. This is not different ways to get saved or become a Jesus follower. These are different ways to live a life that reflects him and his kingdom. So just read through the Beatitudes and listen to how different this is than what those people would have been used to hearing.
3: So we'll start in Matthew five, verse three. Yeah, that's good. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will
2: inherit the earth.
4: God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they shall be shown mercy.
2: Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people avile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
1: Now, every one of those things in the Beatitudes are things that were, in a sense, countercultural to the way life was lived then and basically to the way life Mm -hmm. is lived now. We're all about happiness. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. We're all about power and authority. He says, blessed are the meek. I mean, we live in a world that is geared one way, and Jesus goes onto this mountain to reflect a whole different way of living life. And it's not just a way of living life, it's the way he will be living life. I think it's important. He brings this message at the beginning of his ministry, and then for the next three or so years, he lives it out in the sight of everyone there. You want blessed or the meek? What about going to a cross and accepting
3: that? He's really about transformation, and Mm -hmm. he does turn things upside down. And so, Bill, what I'm thinking here is that, you know, whether it's about our mind or our heart or explaining or proclaiming, you know, great, great handles for our understanding. Now I'm thinking about a moment that truly was pivotal for me, and it wasn't about my understanding. It wasn't about me seeing the whole story of the Bible. The moment I'm going to now was a transformational moment in my heart, and that's a moment When I was looking up at my original family and down at my created family and seeing brokenness everywhere and looking at myself and thinking, well, I've done things so right. And God began to gently transform my thinking into understanding that I'm broken, too, Hmm. and that he brings beauty in brokenness. And that's been a life-changing transformation. So maybe that's the teaching from the mountain, too, that he intended to create in our beings as we follow Him.
1: His upside-down kingdom is always going to confound the thinking and the values of the world systems around us. Mm -hmm. It will always confound it, and that's why when we live the life of the King, the life that He modeled and expressed and taught, when we live that life, it is always going to confound the world around us, but it is also Always going to be the very best way that we can represent him to that world and show them why he is so desperately needed, not only in that day, but in every day.
0: Yeah, the principles that Jesus taught were countercultural 2,000 years ago, and they're certainly countercultural today. The Sermon on the Mount is a key part of the story and message of the Bible, and it happened on a mountain. Well, you're at the table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day here on the Discover the Word podcast. And we will move on to mountain number eight, where something so otherworldly happened that it had to leave Jesus' disciples saying, Did that really just happen? We'll look at that after this message. Even though we will make 10 stops at different mountains in these two podcasts, we still won't have time to cover all the important mountaintop moments in scripture. For example, we won't talk about the dramatic battle that took place at Mount Tabor. But that doesn't mean you can't discover what took place there by watching an episode from the Our Daily Bread Films documentary, Holy Land, with Dr. Jack Beck. We're going up to about 1,800 feet above sea level. That's a good 1,800 feet of climbing. This, this climb up Mount Tabor just feels like the story told in the book of Judges. Yeah, Jack does such a great job of telling that story. And you can watch that episode for free when you visit discovertheword.org or find it on the Our Daily Bread Ministries YouTube channel. And now mountain number eight in our series, The Gospel in the Mountains, The Mount of Transfiguration.
1: I don't know about you guys and how you prepare lessons or conversations or whatever we want to call them we have our own way but one of the things I tend to spend a lot of time on is thinking about okay what's a good question to kind of open it with and I racked my brain trying to come up with some entry point for today's conversation and I kept drawing blank (laughs) and the reason is because I can't Think of anything that can be a point of reference for the transfiguration of Jesus.
3: That totally surprises me, Bill. Because <laughs> the first thing I think of here when I think of you and the transfiguration is Star Wars. And I think about <laughs> when Princess Leia is, you know, with R2D2 and he shoots out this video of Obi Wan Kenobi. This. Mm-hmm presentation of him, this kind of hologram. I'm like, you can figure this. You can surely imagine this, right?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> but do you understand the problem, why it's so hard to figure out something to relate to a situation as unique as the transfiguration of Jesus?
4: Mm. You know, if you start, though, really small, like with my mind, it seems to relate to almost any time you're looking at someone, you thought you knew him. But all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. it's like either they describe some of their interests or what they've experienced in life or they come out with an insight. And it's like, oh, good night. You see that person in a whole new way.
2: Mm -hmm. But I also feel the tension, Bill, that you're probably feeling because this is such a monumental, important, Mm -hmm. life-altering moment where heaven and earth meet in a very explicit and real way. Like, how do you come up with a worldly example from our lives that doesn't feel like it lessens that or cheapens Mm. it in some way? So I get that, too.
4: I think you're right. I think, Bill, you're up on the mountaintop with this one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good news is you guys are going to join me up on that mountain uh, in Matthew 17, verse 1. But I do think, Daniel, that you described the tension that I was feeling. But I also think, Mart, that what you said is exactly what's going to go through the minds of Peter, James, and John, who are with Jesus Mm -hmm. on the Mount of Transfiguration, because following this event, I don't think they'll ever be able to look at Jesus the same way Mm. again. Mm. They're going to see him differently than they ever had. And in a sense, of course, because that's kind of what transfiguration means. (laughs) Uh, But uh, at the same time, it is such a, to lean into what you were saying, Daniel, such an otherworldly kind of an event, that it takes some willingness to step outside our normal Mm. experience to try to process and maybe use a little biblical imagination if we could, and try and imagine what that must have been like. So let's go to Matthew chapter 17. And we want to read some of this story. We're not going to read all of it. Let's read verses one through
3: seven. Matthew 17, um, one through seven. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light.
2: Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah.
4: But even as he spoke, a a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground.
3: But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus.
2: I bet they were afraid. (laughs) Like, let's be real. (laughs) If they weren't afraid, they weren't paying attention. (laughs) Um,
1: Now, what's interesting, in yesterday's conversation, when we were on the Sermon on the Mount, Mark, you reminded us that in the Old Testament, mountaintops and high places were used for idol worship, and that's where the altars were, and things like that, and you uh, expressed a wonder if perhaps that was part of why Jesus went on a mountain to inaugurate his new kingdom teaching, to put it in contrast to that. And we don't know for sure, it's certainly possible, but it seems to me that here, especially with Peter talking about wanting to build three tabernacles, this seems to be a moment where the old high places are being permanently done away with, Mm. and there's a new high place. And it's not specifically because it's on a mountain, it's because it's in Jesus. Mm. And the mountain, I think, is, in this case, doing away
4: with the old. Mm. What I'm thinking of, Bill, is what you said earlier in this conversation. You said, I'll bet for these men they never ever could see Jesus the same way again. And I'm wondering if it threw it for them, if they saw him in such power and such glory at that point, that the thought of him dying or going to, he kept talking about, I got to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Mm -hmm. It may have been impossible for them to imagine that Mm -hmm. after having Mm -hmm. seen him transfigured.
1: Well, and also not only to see him transfigured, but who did they see with him? Mm -hmm.
3: The heroes of the faith, Moses, Elijah, yeah, Hmm?
1: Yeah, two guys we saw on mountains in the Old Testament. Oh, you know? uh, we saw yeah. Moses on Sinai and Nebo, mm-hmm. and we saw that in the New Testament, Moses would finally be allowed to enter the promised land, and he just did. And then we saw in an earlier conversation, <laughs> Elijah on Mount Carmel, mm-hmm. and now he's there with Jesus as well. And for the Jewishness of Peter, James, and John, that
2: would have been hugely mm-hmm. significant yeah. to them and the Jewishness of the audience that Matthew's writing to, right? A big part of Matthew's Mm -hmm. audience is writing to Mm -hmm. Jewish Christians or Jews that aren't yet Christians. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so part of Mm -hmm. putting Jesus on this mountain with Moses and Elijah bringing attention to this story is showing them that this is not just an ordinary teacher or an ordinary rabbi like they may think he is. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, I'm going to read verse 2 again. And I want us to just kind of sit with it for a second and imagine what that must have been like for Peter, James, and John to witness this. It says, There Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. (laughs) Now, Is it just me, or is that kind of hard to get your mind around a little bit?
3: It is, and you can go to all the various films we've seen trying Mm -hmm. to depict this moment in history. It is absolutely beyond Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. we can imagine, isn't it? Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's really important for us to understand, since we can't really get our minds around what it would have been like to have been there and witnessed that. John, who was there, later when he wrote his gospel, described this moment, we believe, when he said, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, Mm. the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter, in one of his letters, describes this. We saw his majesty Mm. on the mountain. Mm. The impact that it had on those men who were
4: there is extraordinary. And it seems to resonate, too, with John's words, the vision of the revelation, right? Chapter Mm 1.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the glorified Christ, brilliant like the sun and bright and shining and all those different things. There's one more element to this that I don't want us to miss, although for our purposes, I don't think it's the main point. I think the main point is here, we get a sense of who Jesus is. And in Luke's account of this, Luke says that not only were Moses and Elijah there, but they were talking to Jesus literally about his exodus. Hmm his exodus his departure and we know that between the mount of transfiguration and that departure was a cross and an empty tomb Mm. Mm. but one thing i think is really interesting is that at the beginning of the first phase of jesus's public ministry at his baptism god the father appeared and said this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased and now as jesus moves into the second phase of his ministry which is to move into the events of the passion and the cross, and the resurrection. Once again, the Father validates the Son Mm. in this marvelous Mm. way with witnesses Mm. who can speak to that.
3: Mm. That is so powerful, Bill. As uh, we were reading that, it was echoing to me how close to the Father's heart this Son is, and He is presented in all His glory here. That's a beautiful thing. So you see Him as a human in the river with John, and God speaks his love and pronouncement over him, and then you see him deified, I mean, who he truly is as God, and the Father speaks over him with his Mm. love. It's really hard to get our minds around that. And
4: don't you get the sense, too, that it must be coming from within in a way that could not be seen before, rather than Mm -hmm. being something that was brought and imposed on him in that moment?
1: Yeah.
3: Back to what you actually said, Mart, at the beginning, just how you know we don't even understand who people really are and, yeah. and God's revealing who his son really is.
1: Yeah, I don't think John could have written John 1.14 if there hadn't been a transfiguration, because I don't mm-hmm. think he would have ever seen it like that. Mm-hmm. But because he saw it, he could write that. And we see the glory of Jesus. And I think to something else you said earlier, Marta, maybe this is the larger point to latch on to. Imagine being on that mountain. Seeing Jesus this way, and then only a short time later, seeing him beaten and crucified, mm-hmm. and trying to connect the dots between those two things as discontinuous as they are, yeah, for sure, would have been unbelievable. And yet, here we see the glory of Jesus revealed, but in John 12, anticipating the cross, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Mm-hmm. And still, even on the cross. He is being glorified, but even more so, he's expressing the heart of his father.
0: And that is mountain number eight, where Peter and James and John had to be left saying, you know, did that really just happen? The Mount of Transfiguration. And now mountain number nine, the mountain all the other mountains we'll look at in this study are pointing to. Mount Calvary.
1: At different times on Discover the Word, we've had occasion to talk about maybe what some of our favorite hymns or favorite Christian songs were, songs that had meant a lot to us. And Mart, I remember you naming one in particular as one of your
4: favorite hymns. Do you remember what you mentioned? What I'm thinking of, this might have been it. You know, I've been so absorbed the last few years in the crucifixion of Christ And just it seems like it's just continually opening up to me. Did I say the Old Rugged Cross? Is that possible? That's exactly what you said. Now, Daniel and Elisa, do you
1: remember (laughs) what the first line of the Old Rugged Cross is? I think it's on a hill far away. Okay, Elisa, are you agreeing with him? I
3: agree, I agree. (laughs) What is the song whose first line is on a hill far away? Answer the old rugged cross. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it's not the only song that does that. There's a song entitled, I Believe in a Hill Called Mount Calvary. In the hymn, Blessed Redeemer, it begins, Up Calvary's Mountain, One Dreadful morn." In the old gospel song, One Day, One Day They Led Him Up Calvary's Mountain. Mm -hmm. All of those are very appropriate since we've been talking about mountains for the last couple of weeks together. What's interesting is that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Calvary was a hill or a mountain. Oh, come on. Really? (laughs) I'm serious. We'll talk about maybe why that developed and stuff like that in a minute. But what the Bible does say is that it was a place, and that it was a place called the skull, Mm -hmm. and that it was outside the city. Those are the only real landmarks the New Testament gives us about the actual location of Calvary. It seems that the tradition of it being referred to as a hill or a mountain started in about the 6th century. So I guess the question that I would throw out to you is, why do you think a tradition like that would have begun?
4: Yeah, or lasted that long.
3: We've talked about how worship was done on mountains. So, you know, is that part of it, why it began and why it's lasted?
2: Well, there's also too, I would say, maybe a huge part of early church tradition was pilgrimages of going to important places. So I would imagine they tried to figure out where it was so people could go and visit where Jesus had been killed. So maybe there was some work that they did as well, Elisa, that trying to figure out where it was. And by the sixth century, they kind of figured out or at least thought that they did that it was a hill. I don't know. There is ancient thought.
4: Some have believed that, uh, that he was crucified on the Mount of Olives, mm-hmm. and there's fairly detailed explanations for that. I don't know if that could contribute.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, and actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because tomorrow we're going to talk about the Mount of Olives, and I want us to come back to that when we do. So so hang on to that thought, if you would, until tomorrow's conversation, Mark. Let me throw a couple of reasons at you why this tradition could have developed and then tell you why I think Calvary needs to be included in this series, whether it was a literal mountain or not, okay? Hmm. The first reason that I think it's possible is if you remember when we were talking about Mount Zion last week, and we talked about the fact that Jerusalem was built on a series of hills. There were multiple hills around there, and so there aren't very many places around Jerusalem that aren't on a mountaintop. I mean, you have the Kidron Valley that's between the Old City of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which is a low place, but all around, it's fairly high territory, and so a lot of that territory would be considered hills or mountains, whether a specific one was identified or not, just because of the topography of it. The second thing is found in the the word, the skull. Somebody read Luke 23, 33 for us, because... That's one of four different places in the Gospels where it's described as a skull.
2: Daniel, do you want to read that for us? Sure. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left.
1: Now, those who are proponents of the hilltop mountain-type view of this say that It was called the place of the skull because it was shaped like a skull, that it was kind of a ridge line or or the top of a hill that looked visibly like a skull. And one of the places that we visited in the times that I've been in Jerusalem is a place called Gordon's Calvary, where some people believe maybe, we don't know for sure, the crucifixion might have taken place, but it actually does look visibly like a skull. So some who are proponents of it say, they came to that position because it looked like a skull. Others say, no, it's not likely it was called that because it looked like a skull. It's a place where people were killed. It was a place of death. And that's why it was called a skull.
3: That makes good sense, but I'm confused on something. Maybe you can help me. Is that when we're reading in Luke twenty-three thirty-three, the place which is called a skull, in some translations, I think the KJV, it's the place called Calvary. And we've been talking about Mount Calvary. Where does that word Calvary come from rather than the word skull? I'm confused about that.
1: Well, what's interesting is that the Greek word for skull is craniou, from which we get the word cranium. Mm -hmm. So we know that word. But interesting, the Latin word for skull is calvaria, from which we get the word Calvary. So you have the skull Calvary describing perhaps what the place looked like and you have Golgotha which appears maybe to have been the name mm. of the place.
3: That's intriguing, I like that.
1: Over the last 2 weeks together we've been looking at these mountains in the Bible and we've been seeing them moving forward in the story of the Bible and and I go back to what Elisa said in a previous conversation when she said one of the moments where things really popped for her in a Discover the Word program was when it firmly landed in her thinking that the whole bible is just telling one story Mm -hmm. and that's the story of how jesus would come to rescue us and sally lloyd jones every story whispers his name which is such a lovely thought and what i would like to suggest to you is that's what's happening with these mountains that we've been seeing these mountains that we've been seeing are not just steps on a path. It's not just, oh, okay, well, Calvary's just the next one. What I would suggest is every one of these mountains has been leading to and pointing to and bringing us ultimately to this place, whether it was a literal mountain or not. Hmm. Think about what we've seen the last two weeks together. We saw Mount Arad, where Noah and his family represented the human race getting a second chance. Mm -hmm. And the cross, purchase a second chance for humanity. Mount Moriah, Mm -hmm. where God promised a lamb and he gave the lamb, and now a lamb is given on Calvary, the costliest lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We saw Mount Sinai, where with the nation of Israel being born, a new era of God's working was inaugurated with the law being delivered on Sinai. And now with grace fully realized in the sacrifice of Jesus. A new way of God's working is revealed so that we are not saved by the law. We're saved by God's grace and his gift to us. On Mount Nebo, we saw Moses reaping the harvest of his choices and experiencing and absorbing the consequences of his actions. Hmm. On Calvary, how different it is where we see Jesus not absorbing the consequences of his choices but absorbing the consequences of our choices Hmm. on mount zion we saw that mount zion was taken by david to be a place for the king (laughs) and here we see on calvary the king of kings the great king who came and laid down his life for us all on mount carmel just a couple of days ago we saw god through his prophet elijah invite israel to return to him Having wandered far from him and the cross, Calvary is an invitation to the world to turn and come and be welcomed by a loving father. Hmm. On the Mount of Teaching, we heard the king describing a whole new way to live and a way that involves self-sacrifice. And on Calvary, we see that king living that out as he lays down his life and sacrifices himself. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw the King's glory revealed in a brilliant and wonderful way on the cross, on the place of the skull. We see his glory revealed in a very different way. The glory of the Son fulfilling the Father's plan from before the foundation of the world to bring us home and to make us his own. Calvary is the culmination of all of the story but Calvary is not the end of the story the story goes on we have one more mountain that we want to see tomorrow and we'll find out that as we saw in a different mountain that you really can go home again on our final mountain together we'll see Jesus going home again to his father.
0: the group. will look at that final mountain with you in just a moment after this word about our next important conversation on the Discover the Word podcast.
5: Think about this. Now it's 1965 and you're thinking, I need to preach a passage to an all-black congregation pushing back on segregation versus you have the same passage in front of you and you have a all-white pro-segregation audience. The same text is going to lead to different kinds of sermons. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that no experiences or no audiences influence the way that we interpret the Bible is simply dishonest. Anybody who's preached, simply being around different kinds of people, being in different parts of the country, influences how you talk about text. So I'm not talking about that being black changes the meaning of the Bible. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that the collective experiences, ethos, and culture of African-American Christians, which is themselves diverse, create a disposition towards reality that may allow us to see things in text that other people neglect. Don't
0: miss our conversation with the author of the award-winning book, Reading While Black, Esau McCauley, on our next Discover the Word podcast. And now, one more mountain and the hope and the promise associated with it.
1: As we've spent these last two weeks having a series of, for lack of a better word, mountaintop experiences, what are some things that have stood out to you as we've looked at them together?
4: Oh man, I can't get over the the last conversation, Bill, when you uh, pulled it all together. Mm-hmm. You ended up showing how Calvary, the cross, ends up, you know, bringing fullness of meaning to all the other mountains. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm.
2: I think for me, just seeing the whole story unfold together, oftentimes we read Scripture in pieces. And so we may not see all these mountains telling pieces of the story. And so getting to read through all of those, or at least a a good handful of them, has been very interesting to see how Hmm. God shows up on mountains and how that pushes the story of Jesus throughout the story of the Bible.
3: Yeah, what a beautiful arc that is. And you know, it, maybe we just all want to spend a little more time really watching for those mountains as we read the story of Scripture in the future.
4: Yeah, that's good, at least. And you know, I think we had it several times or a couple of times the thought, too, that the, uh, the high place of the cross really displaces the high places of the false gods
3: uh-huh.
1: of
4: the mm-hmm. world. Yeah.
3: And saying that, Mart, I was thinking a lot about Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills from whence does my help come. And you pointed out that that really is talking about how we tend to worship false gods, you know, and we look to the mountains as not really the source of help we need to depend upon. But you know what, I live in a place of mountains, I live in Colorado. Hmm. And this series has adjusted my gaze, if you will, you know, yeah. to, to help me question what am I looking to the mountains for and what mountain am I looking to for that help? That's good.
1: Yeah, earlier in our conversations in one of the other programs, Lisa, you made the comment that you weren't sure you'd ever look at mountains the same way again. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel that myself because I think about the old gospel song, Lord, lift me up and help me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher place than I had found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Mm. Mm. And I've thought about that a lot as we've gone through this series, the higher ground of what God has done through his world Mm -hmm. and through his son ultimately, and how he has strategically, it seems, chosen to do so much of that on mountaintops, on higher ground, Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, so that he can lift us up to that higher ground with him. Uh, For me, this has been a a real joy to do this together. We have one more, and it's it's a mountain that came up in yesterday's program briefly, Mart, because you mentioned it. You talked about the fact that um, there are some scholars who have speculated that perhaps Calvary was part of the Mount of Olives,
4: yeah, and uh, I recall some of that is based on the fact that the centurion seeing the veil split.
3: In the temple?
4: Yeah, right, and where could he have seen that except from the, the high place of, of Olives? Yeah, the
1: for those who've not been to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives overlooks the old city of Jerusalem and looks directly down onto the Temple Mount. Mm. Ah. Now the Temple Mount is the home to two Muslim mosques. Uh, but in Jesus' day, Herod's temple would have been there. And so to your point, Mart, some have speculated that perhaps that could be seen by the Centurion from the top of the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that the Mount of Olives is where we're going to end our journey together, but the Mount of Olives is really strategic in the Passion Week events. It's at the Mount of Olives where the triumphal entry takes place. Hmm. It's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus teaches what is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's at the base of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And then we come to today's event, as you say, Mark, perhaps Calvary, is in there following Gethsemane, but today's event we see Jesus return to the Mount of Olives and from there he will ascend to his father. So let's go to Acts chapter one, because in an earlier conversation, the one on Mount Carmel, I raised the question about are you familiar with the expression, you can't go home again? Right. And then we talked on the Mount of Transfiguration, about Jesus's coming Exodus from Jerusalem. Well, now we see those two ideas combined on the Mount of Olives as Jesus will make his exodus from Jerusalem, and in so doing, he will go home Hmm. to his father. So Acts chapter 1, and um, begin with verse 8,
2: and read around to verse 12. This is Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight.
3: They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven.
4: Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile.
3: Yeah,
1: my translation says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So, whereas it was very obscure regarding Calvary, it's very specific uh, on the Mount of Olives that this is a real hill we're talking about here. What's interesting is that Jesus departs from the Mount of Olives. And for a second, I want you to think back to the Mount of Transfiguration. And for Peter and John and James, who saw the Mount of Transfiguration, mm-hmm. then they saw the events of the Passion. This probably feels a lot closer to the Mount of Transfiguration than what had happened in between, don't you think?
3: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's a great catch. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that if you keep reading down in verse 13, they're going in to appoint the apostles and going forward, and it starts out, those present were Peter, John, and James. So it is such Mm -hmm. an echo. There it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, When you think about this moment, this is another one of those moments that it's kind of hard to imagine. I mean, imagine first century eyes, Mm -hmm. and you watch this teacher that you have lived in the presence of for some three years. And you've experienced so much of life with him. And all of a sudden, he just starts to lift up Hmm. out of your sight. And I mean, that would be so surreal and so hard to get your mind around, like so many other things they had seen in their experiences with Jesus.
2: And it seems like they're expecting that this is just one of Jesus's teaching moments or something, because they keep staring up, expecting him to come right back down.
3: (laughs) Even though he's warned them, but
2: yeah, Mm -hmm. I couldn't
3: help but think, now what's he going to do?
1: Here we see a place where Jewish thought and Christian thought merge together because the angels, these young men in white apparel, we believe were angels, and they tell the disciples, that just as Jesus has departed, he's going to return the exact same way. I think that they probably heard to this spot. Hmm. And Jewish, ancient Jewish thought was that when Messiah came, he was going to arrive at the Mount of Olives Hmm. and that he was going to enter Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate. And that's why when you look down the slope from the Mount of Olives, you see all these tombs of people who are buried facing the eastern gate so that when Messiah comes they will rise in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Wow. So here we see the promised hope of Israel and the hope of followers of Jesus merging in this one location, which I think is pretty spectacular.
4: It really is. And Bill, that's grounded right in the the prophets of the Old Testament scriptures, right? Yes. Zechariah, I think. Yeah, Zechariah
2: Chapter 14, verse 4, if somebody would like to read that for us. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Hmm.
1: Now that's a very dramatic image. I'd say. What's fascinating to me is that whereas the specifics of the location of Calvary are very obscure. Zechariah is very Mm -hmm. specific. (laughs) He says not once but twice that when Messiah comes, he's coming to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus did come to the Mount of Olives at the triumphal entry. He presented himself to the nation there. And now, having given himself to redeem the world, having given himself to rescue us, now from that same Mount of Olives... Jesus goes home again. He returns to the Father, and that's good news for us because the book of Hebrews tells us that even now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, praying for us, Hmm. caring for us, shepherding us as our conquering king, as our loving savior, as our great high priest, and as our friend who sticks closer than a brother.
0: great way to conclude this two-part podcast called The Gospel in the Mountains here on Discover the Word. These 10 distinct mountaintop events spread across thousands and thousands of years are all part of the same story, and it's really been eye-opening to see how many of the high points, the significant events that contribute to the overall storyline of the Bible took place on mountains. Thanks, Bill, for leading us through that. You've been at the table studying alongside Bill Crowder, Mark Dehan, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is about discovering the life-changing wisdom of the Bible together with you. And these podcasts are made possible thanks to the voluntary support of friends like you. If you'd like to support this ministry, there are at least a couple of ways you can do that, either by giving a one-time donation or by giving an automatic monthly gift as a Discover the Word monthly partner. It's easy to give when you go online to our discovertheword.org website. Click the donate button. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hettinger. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.